All right, welcome back everyone to another episode of Startup Fuckups. Today I have a good friend of mine, Paul Lean, who runs the company WooSender. Uh, Paul and I actually go way back and it's very interesting how we ended up meeting. I think Paul, you you reached out to me on LinkedIn, sent me a message and say, hey, let's go grab dinner. <laughs> sort of like a, dinner? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think it was dinner. It sounded like a, a random person approaching me for a dinner date. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i i appreciate you uh taking the time to build your network that way and and i'm curious like before we even dive into the episode itself is that how you still continue to to build your network or do you no 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 more gone are the days uh, i used to do that uh to meet new people meet agency owners um but then i think the time have, has passed uh, i value my time more now uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but maybe maybe i will try that next time no surprise, no surprise. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure you're kept very busy by the three different businesses that you run. I know you have your, your main marketing company, you have your passive um, KuCall, and now you have your main business, WooSender itself. So, so maybe I'll, I'll let you introduce yourself. Tell, tell us all about you know who you are, uh, what is WooSender, and kind of how did you end up where you're doing what you're doing today? Awesome, awesome. So, uh, hey guys, uh, my name is Paul. And I started my marketing agency back then in 2010 after I marketed here to uh, Canada. I can't find a job. So I was like, hmm, I need to do something right with my life. And um, so while I'm looking for a job, I started, you know, looking around in the internet and I found, you know, a marketing course that you know allows me to work from home. Um, you know the gimmicks. And um, yep, I bought that course and that's how I got started with the uh, marketing. And then... The good news is after a few months of doing that, I finally got a job doing marketing, which is a, a very interesting. And uh, my boss gave me, you know, like a $5,000 budget to uh, do more internet marketing. Um, at that moment, most of his clients, he got it from Yellow Pages. Mm-hmm. So I was like, man, there's a lot of things can be done. And during that first three months, I literally learned as I go, I, I Google like the blogs and stuff like that to learn how to do marketing. And within three months, I tripled his sales using digital marketing, using Google back then. And it was really impressed. That's how I realized that, hey, if I can help my boss, I can do the same for my clients. That's how I get all, um, that's how I get started with you know, looking for my clients, reaching out by email, cold calling. And... Yeah, this is where I am today. So after 10 years now, I've been doing digital marketing. Uh, I decided to you know, venture into a software niche where I provide software as a service. Uh, it seems to be a better business model than before, rather than me being a consultant, trying to uh, learn and improve myself on a daily basis. But having a SaaS business, you are allowed to focus more on a product rather than trying to uh, keep yourself up to date with the latest you know, strategies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Cool. Tell us more about the, the product itself. So yeah, Woo was created back in uh, three years ago uh, with a business partner of mine in the US. Uh, his name is Steve. Um, so we have this problem when we do marketing for people. We realize that, you know, despite spending all the money and getting all those leads, my clients actually never really call them. They just receive those emails. If they have a system in place, it works really well. But most of my clients are self-employed. You know, they don't. They only call back the call one time. They call back the clients just one time, and the client didn't pick up. He would say, "Oh, the lead's not good enough." 
Uh, if they, so he would text the client once. If there's no response, he move on. And he would blame it on us that we are not generating enough volume or we're generating quality leads. So those 80% of the leads that we generated technically go, gone to waste. Um, they just throw it away because they don't call them three times or they don't email them. They don't follow up with them. So we decided to create this software that allows you to automate the follow-up. So this way, anyone who uses our system, all they need to do is load the leads into our system and our system will automatically follow up on behalf for them for the next three to five days without them lifting a finger. That's how we decided to, you know what? I think this is a really good business idea. So maybe a business partner partner up and start uh, creating that software. So today, uh, WooCenter is basically an AI automation follow-up system. The goal of WooCenter is to combine all your communication into one single dashboard. So you don't need email, you don't need WhatsApp, you don't need Facebook Messenger, you, you don't need SMS, you don't need a separate phone number. You all... By using our tool, everything is in one place. So all the communication is transparent. You can see everything in one place. You can set up all the automation. And the AI that we develop allows you to book a call with a client without you getting involved or doing anything at all. Mm -hmm. and, and out of curiosity, and probably more for the, the listeners who are not familiar with a good follow-up process, where would you kind of draw the line or kind of distinguish between persistent follow-up versus being tenacious enough, but not being like too pushy. There's many best practices out there. There's no right and wrong answer. The mm -hmm. goal is to follow up because you already paid for those marketing effort. Like for example, if you hire me, you pay for my fees and the marketing budget to generate leads through let's say Facebook ads or Google ads. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you do a billboard or maybe your clients come to a website through organic search on Google and then fill out a form. That's where the sales actually starts. You don't actually make money until you close the deal. And that's where a lot of people lack off. They only call once. They don't have a system in place to call them again. So that's, um, the, to be, I mean, exactly, there's only no right and wrong answer, but you want to be <laughs> persistent enough so that you don't waste that leads and don't piss them off. But at the same time, you want to be uh, aggressive enough such that you know you make sure you try your best to get them to talk to you on yeah. the phone. So um, what we do right now is we have a five-day sequence where we follow up with them every single day just for five days. And then after that, it stops. Hmm. And we will also leave a voicemail like three times in five days. That's it. So we... We will text them, we will email them, we will leave a voicemail. And if they don't respond, we will then move forward and uh, and not bothering, you know, following up with them because they might not be a good fit or they just do not want to talk to somebody. But just by doing that five-day sequence, the number of conversation that we can help get our clients increased by 3x. Mm -hmm. So that means if you have 10 people inquire for your uh, roofing services and you usually only get, let's say, one conversation out of it. Right now, we, we, by just doing that five-day sequence, you get three more conversations, just like that, yeah. with the same amount of money spent. So it's really, really powerful. And you know, most people doesn't realize that uh, big companies has really good system in place to, you know, they have a sales team that calls you again and again and again until you pick up the phone. Um, you know, you might not be happy, but out of 100 calls they make, they get 10 new customers. Yeah. 
I, th I think the numbers basically uh, put the proof in the pudding. Um, but to add my two cents as well, I think a good follow-up, uh, which you probably are already doing, but maybe it's not something that you're actively conscious about, is that when you follow up, you, you're not just saying like, hey, how come you haven't answered my call kind of thing. You're actually saying like, hey, I'm not sure if you missed my call or hey, not sure if a phone call is the right way to reach you. I'm going to send you an email. So trying different ways and phrasing it in different ways. That way you don't end up becoming pushy and, and you're able to give, give the client the benefit of doubt that they are actually missing your call because maybe there was something out, you know, that they were busy with. And I think um, sometimes just, just the sheer following up, even if it's the same message again, works very well as well. Cause I'll give my personal example. I, I'm recently um, had to look for a cleaner for my, for my old building. Cause I'm, my tenant is moving out. So obviously what I would do is I would reach out to a whole bunch of different cleaners to get quotes. And then I'm noticing that some of them, they never follow up. Some of them, they follow up a few times. And the ones that follow up a few times stay top of mind because as I'm shopping around for quotes, as I haven't made my decision yet, the, the ones that I tend to remember are naturally the ones who have followed up a few times. So that helps me shortlist them as well. So for this one. Yep, yep. A follow-up is always better than no follow-up. So that's 100% correct. Cool. And so then I, from there, yeah, you just have to optimize your message in a way that you can get them to see your value. And then the goal is to get them to talk to you. That's it. We don't have to write a whole 100, uh, 1,000 words paragraph, you know, on an email. The goal is just to get them to jump to a call with you. And then from there, you can do what you do best, which is closing them. Yeah. So... I'm curious to hear, especially for today's episode, since the topic is uh, software development fuck-ups. Um, as someone who has like, who started with zero marketing experience going into building a marketing company, now you have zero software experience going into building a SaaS solution. How did you go about figuring out where to get started when it comes to building a, a SaaS solution? Back then, I, back then I just do it. <laughs> I never think a lot. I just get started. Whatever savings that I have, I just go all in. Mm. Um, but I realized that's really a big, big mistake. Uh, what I learned right now is that you want to start with the minimum viable product. What's the fastest way you can get your product out there so that you can start selling it? That's, uh, I think, the number one most important lesson that I learned from there. So, it's, it's hard, like, you know, there's so many things that I learned from the internet, you know, there's a lot of information out there. I guess it's just more on you spending time finding the right information to learn from, from the right website, from the right consultant, from the right person. Mm -hmm. um, another thing that I found out is easier is to actually talk to someone, you know, talk to an actual software consultant, mm -hmm. see, you know, pay them whatever rate they're asking for, you know, $100 an hour, $200 an hour. The amount of information you can get out of that $100, $200, it's so good that it saves you, you know, $1,000 worth of mistakes down the road. Um, because they have been doing soft. For example, like if I knew earlier, I would talk to a developer early before I even started doing anything so that I can get the context right. For example, what language would the software be, uh, you know, what type of server I should host it, what type of developers I need, you know, what type of backend language I need or code I need. Is it uh, MySQL? Is it like MongoDB? You know, all those uh, yeah. terms. Um, 
you know, so, from there. Sorry to quickly cut you, uh, cut you off. Um, can you give a bit more context? Like, did you did you build it yourself? Did you hire a developer? Did you work with an outsourced company? Did you work with an agency? Um, well, I actually hired someone uh, from Upwork that are based in uh, initially my first developers in India. Mm. And then I found out they're not a good fit. Then I find someone in Vietnam and I realized they are a really good company. That's how I got everything got started. Mm -hmm. It all starts from there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Cool. Sorry, you were saying? Yeah. So, yeah. So basically what I did was I just get started, just do it mentality, uh, make a lot of mistakes along the way. Mm -hmm. um, that's how I started KuCall, which is the call tracking company software that I use. Uh, mm -hmm. And then with WooCenter, it's a little bit different. It's much more efficient. I know exactly what I'm going after. I already have a team in place that uh, built KuCall that can be used to build uh, WooCenter. So mm -hmm. a lot of the mistakes made on KuCall that I used to think it's a, you know, I, I wasted so much money on that project turned out to be a really beneficial learning experience for WooCenter. So, yeah. yep, that's, uh, that's how I get started. Just dive in right there. Yeah, you know. Question for you. So you you mentioned the minimum viable product, and often what I find a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with is when when I talk to them about prototyping, when I talk to them about this minimum viable product, um, it is hard for them to condense like their entire vision of what the 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 end software or or app or whatever it is is gonna do into this prototype. What have you found? Oh, or at least what have you learned about what makes a, a minimum viable product? To me, a minimum viable product is a product that can use, that can start making you money. That That's my definition. I, I know there's a lot of terms out there, you know, like what's the minimum product features you need to start selling. But mm -hmm. to me, it's not about starting to sell. It's more like, what's the minimum amount of feature you need to start making money? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily selling it, but what is the minimum? Like for call tracking, cool call that I created, the minimum viable product is to be able, uh, able to buy a phone number and then start tracking calls. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the minimum. Because I know with that, I can start selling already. Mm -hmm. uh, with WooCenter, it's a little bit more complex. So we need a dashboard with all the conversation in place. But um, the key here is as long as the platform is able to send and receive text messages, send and receive emails, able to make the call, uh, make a phone call directly from the platform, that's the minimum viable product. The AI stuff, the pipeline, the, you know, call recordings or uh, the automation, those are not the minimum. Those are the second phase, I would say. So the first mm -hmm. phase is if, we, if I have that basic done, I can start selling yeah. and start making money. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I've seen a lot of, Interesting MVPs, so to speak. Uh, I, I would even say that your minimum viable product doesn't even need to be tech necessary. Uh, it, it could even be like, let's say, for example, um, if you're if you're trying to test uh, a product that you have no idea if there's appeal for it, the the ad that you put out, the the Facebook ad or the Google ad, uh, and then that leading to a landing page, that itself could be a minimum viable product. Or it could even just be like a video or a Kickstarter campaign. So it doesn't necessarily have to be software driven um i guess to, to, to speak to your note where it is something that can actually make profit 
what I've seen there on the profit side of thing, things is a good minimum viable product is something that gives the customer the end experience. So on a customer side of things, they feel like the product is complete, or at least it's complete for what they need it to do. There may be additional bells and whistles that you can throw in later on, like maybe you can throw in like automation, dashboard, that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, they get the, the kind of quote unquote full experience, even if everything is happening manually on your backend. So the experience side, it mimics the, the true experience of your product, then that's a good MVP. Um, and then the other one is, it's something that will actually teach you something. If you're putting up a, a product with too many features, sometimes the, the struggle that you have probably seen, Paul, is that it's hard to learn what is going wrong or what people aren't using if there are too many things included. The, the less you have, the more you can learn. And I usually find like that's a very good starting point for just to, to test, to see you know what, what customers react to, what do they want to use, what do they like. Yeah. Yes, yes. Like everything can be done using the MVP method, like marketing, just an ad and a landing page. You can get it up and running. Um, for example, you want to validate your business idea. You don't even need to create a product. You just, like you said, do a good video marketing on Kickstarter to validate the number of people who are interested in your product. And then that from there, it's an MVP by itself, but it's just not the product itself. It's just more on the idea itself is an MVP. Then when you validate your idea, then you create an MVP product. So yeah, it's a, I think it's really, really powerful uh, in my opinion. Um, that's what I did for Woosender. I realized a lot of mistakes. I have a friend that also started uh, a, um, a business here doing food delivery. It's the same thing. Um, he learns from that and now it becomes even more uh, interesting that everything he do right now, whenever he want to start a business, he start with an MVP. So instead of you know you creating a, a renting a big place for your restaurant and then you know getting all the chef in place and a commercial kitchen in place the mvp can be a food truck mm. right you start with that one just get a truck and then you yourself can be a cook and start selling see what the experience looks like what the feedback looks like and if a lot of people love your food like what japadok did they can now venture into an actual store or an actual uh sit-in restaurant and they already have all the branding and all the people in place to jumpstart. So it's, so a lot of people are thinking, of, I want to start a restaurant. Let's just open up and rent a place. I'm, I'm good in cooking. And, uh, you know, and you think that it's going to be easy. But a lot of times you can make it an MVP and start with a food truck or maybe do a ghost kitchen, right? You don't need a lot of capital to start. And then from there, you learn the trade you improve your process, and then now you can go for a high capital type of businesses. Mm -hmm. um, maybe maybe tell us, especially for those that are not familiar with the software development process, how do you go about like speaking to that first developer? Did you just say like, hey, I, I want these features, this is what I wanted to do, or did you have to kind of design the UX or user experience flow in terms of like, oh, People first sign in with a login page and then they click here and then they go to, they do this. Like what, what was the kind of um, process in terms of getting the developer to understand what needed to be built? So the first step is actually not to talk to a developer. The first step first is to create a design mockup. That's the most important one. Um, usually how it works is 
the founder or you yourself would then create how you want your app to do, what, mm-hmm. what you want your app to do, and how you want your app to look like. Mm-hmm. From there, your first person that you want to get to it, it's a designer. So mm-hmm. you can hire a UX designer, you know, UX UI designer from, uh, you know, Upwork.com or maybe locally here in Vancouver, um, anywhere, maybe your friends, you know, just to help you to create this initial mock-up with decent colors. There's a, um, there's a tips right there. There's a lot of templates out there that's, that already has great design that all you need to do is just to pay, you know, 30, 30 $40. Mm-hmm. And then you can download the entire template. And then instead of having your UX UI designer create everything from scratch, which costs a lot of time and money, mm-hmm. you then get them to just modify and you work with them, you know, in person, ideally, if not, you know, make sure you have enough guidelines to tell them this is how I want it look like. I want this page. I want a login page. I want this to look like this software. I want this to look like this company here or this website there. And then once you have everything in place, you finalize everything. Only then you bring it to your developer. Because mm-hmm. the developer, what I realize is it's really hard for them to visualize what you want. Sure, you can tell them, I want this feature, I want that feature, or I want the uh, software to look like this company. But mm-hmm. they don't really understand your vision. So by you giving them the design, they'll be able to look at it and say, oh, okay, this is what you actually want. And then they'll be able to tell you that if they can do it or they cannot, they'll be able to consult you on you know, what other language they would use. Is it Node.js? Is it JavaScript? You know, stuff like that. Yep. And then from there, that's where you get technicals. Those technical part is not important. Most important is the visual because all we care as a founder is that we want the end product. We don't care, you know, what the code is or how long does it take. You know, we just want to know the cost. <laughs> I think that's the most important thing. And then um, can you get it done fast enough with this end goal in mind? Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, and to address some of the jargon in case people are not familiar with what UX is and UI is, uh, UX stands for user experience. That's kind of like Paul mentioned, like, you know, if you click this button, where does it go? When you sign in, what page do you see? Uh, where are the buttons that all falls on the UX? UI is more about the user interface. So that's more of the visuals, the color, um, the design itself, like how do things look, what font, those kind of things. Um, cool. So. You, you mentioned you had a mistake with hiring the, the freelancer in India and then you, you switched to an agent, like a, a company in Vietnam. What have you learned about mistakes for, what, what have you learned about hiring the wrong developers? Like how, how do you figure out if the, a developer that you're interviewing is a good fit? Like if they have the right skills? So unfortunately, um, you won't be able to know, unless you're coming from a developer background, you won't be able to know if they are, a good fit in terms of skills wise, right? So I met this company on Upwork. They have a five-star review uh, on as a company. So I know that I'm not making any mistakes right there. And they sort of the cheapest, um, which I think that's one of the biggest mistakes to look at price. Um, their sales team was awesome, which is also another problem because often not the sales team do a good job in getting me to be a customer, but the person who developed is being assigned by the, the management, you know, that doesn't have any experience and all he cares is just to get it done without considering the future or 
maybe consulting with you because you do not know anything about the coding part of it. So uh, what I actually learned is that the easiest way is to you know, hire someone, a consultant or an individual rather than an agency. That's what uh, the first lesson that I learned. You want to start hiring a person rather than an agency because an agency there is to make profit. Um, you know, if you don't know anything, that's where it becomes really dangerous. Mm. Um, so that's number one. Number two, you can actually hire a consultant to help you go through the code that you can pay, you know, maybe slightly more, maybe $50, $60 an hour or maybe $100 an hour. Uh, I know it's going to be expensive, but, you know, one or two or three hours by just hiring them, you're able to save thousands of dollars because if Every time when a certain milestone, when you do a software is achieved, you want to get someone one, two hours just to review the code, just to give you some feedback rather than you go blind. And then you realize at the end of it, you develop a completely, uh, a complete product that is completely waste. So um, that's what I learned. The second thing um, is to always hire a consultant, you know, to just review the code. Um, the third, obviously, is cost. Now, I know cost is really important. That's Last time, that's what I choose for. I think now the good news is today, cost is no longer relevant as much as possible. Back then, everything had to be built from scratch. Today, there's a lot of drag and drop app software that you can use to build your app. So you don't need a lot of technical experience. You don't need a lot of coding. It's literally drag and drop like a Flutter Flow. You can build your mobile app by just drag and drop. It's not beautiful, but you can always get someone to make it looks great. But you get my point, gone are the days where you need someone to sit down and write the code for an entire month just to give you the function that you need. Today is all just can be done with drag and drop that can be done in a week. There's a lot of companies right now out there that focus on helping you get the MVP product out. It can be mobile app, it can be web app, and it can be done literally within two weeks, depending on the functionality of course. But yeah, two weeks. Just like website back then, right? Remember when you want to create a website back in the year 2006, everything has to be coded. You know, web developer was getting paid so well. And then WordPress came along. So WordPress allowed anyone to create their own page and their own teams. And then it becomes easier. Now it's even easier. Today is drag and drop, like unbounced. You don't even need any coding skills anymore. And uh, as of today, you have a lot of AI where you can just tell the AI, hey, I'm a roofing company. I need a website that that do this, this. And then you just one click, it generate the entire website for you without you doing anything. That's how mm-hmm. advanced the, the, the current market is. Same goes with uh, software. Um, software, a lot of functions has already pre-developed. For example, just to give you an example, most software requires someone or the user to log in. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this software out there has already pre-created the login function for you. You don't even need to code it anymore. Mm. So that's how powerful it is. Instead of you, initially back then, we spent like a, a week to just create a login page and making sure all the data of the username and password is collected, making sure there's a validation process in place and that, you know, take one week or two weeks, right? Right, right now, you just drag and drop the module and that part is done. You only need to develop things that are not standardized. For example, uh, 
your, your billing page might not be standardized, but they mm -hmm. have a basic billing functionality that you can charge your client. You just have to tell them what, how much you want to charge, how often. I mean, the login page, every app needs a login page. So that is mm -hmm. standardized. That can be drag and drop. It's done. Uh, if you need a reporting page, depending on data that you provide, a reporting module can automatically generate that for you. You don't need to custom code to pro produce a certain chart or graph that you need. Yeah. So, yeah. That's really powerful. So that's the uh, thing here is the good thing is that, you know, with nowadays the cost is getting cheaper and cheaper. Uh, developers are getting more commoditized. And um, there's a lot more talent right nowadays. You know, uh, it used to be India and Pakistan to be like the outsourcing uh, world for development. But now everything can be done, you know, in Southeast Asia, like Vietnam. Vietnam is really, really cheap at this moment. And the quality of developers are, I would say, I will not say top notch, but one of the best. Um, the only issue here is language barrier but you know if you take your time you take your patience i guess that's the price you pay for uh getting a good and cheap developers but that's worth it just to get the mvp started yeah can, can you tell us a bit about the sort of the, the price of not getting it right like what 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 kind of software that uh did you end up acquiring or so for those not familiar software that, that the idea is basically if you if you don't do your coding right the first time around, same, same with anything in your business. If you don't do your legal right, then things will come back to bite your ass in the future because eventually you will accumulate a certain level of debt and you will have to start to address that because that fire starts to burn a bit more. So can you kind of address, talk about like what are some of the the, the things that start to break down or the issues that happen uh, as you scale because you didn't do it right uh, at, at the start? So right now, Okay, let's just start with the uh, call checking software that we started. So initially it was designed, you know, and patched quickly and the most cost-effective way just to get the project started, right? And then, you know, a lot of things we do not consider like the database type or the certain features that was not considered uh, upfront such that whenever you develop a new feature, they have to rewrite the whole thing again in order to add that feature. So for example, you want to collect more data, instead of just adding a new column, but you have to rebuild the whole column from scratch. And that I think is the biggest uh, mistake that I make by not you know, having someone to review those code. Hmm. Um, so there's a lot of that, like for example, database. Right now with WooSender, we reach a point where we have like two, six million messages a month of data storage. So initially we used this uh, platform called, you know, MongoDB. Now MongoDB, it's a database uh, software that helps you store your data and manage your data. Um, so as we grow to 6 million, 10 million messages per month, that database become not feasible because it's how it was built in a way that if someone using your app is searching for a name, in that 10,000 leads that they have, it's going to slow down the entire server just because everyone is sharing that same database. Mm -hmm. So if we have known earlier, we would have each account created through our platform would have its own database. But again, we, we don't know what we don't know until we reach this point. And a good news, the good news is it works. It works before, it just doesn't work now. It's, mm. it's fine. So with that said, it's very important to also realize that, you know, you, can, you can't plan too far ahead. You know, you have to do what that 
doesn't scale in order just to make the money and then grow. Um, because sometimes if you think too far ahead, you are creating something that you're not going to use for the next two, three years. It's also not feasible cost-wise or time-wise. Um, but yeah, it's very important to get the structure right. That's what we realized. The architecture of the platform of the software has to be done correctly so that the debt that you're going to pay down the road is not going to be too expensive. Yeah. Like just to give you an example right now with WooCenter, we have to create everything from scratch, from ground up. And we call it the WooCenter 2.0. The reason why we have to do that, it's because the code was built initially as a one big giant code. So just one code where all developers work on that code. So whenever we want to develop new feature, all the 10 developers have to talk to each other to make sure nothing gets fucked up. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't... The person A is working on this code doesn't want to affect the person B working on other code. So every time when we deploy a new feature, all 10 of them have to grow up together and say, oh, this is what I work on, you know, and we cannot deploy as we go. Now, big companies doesn't have this problem, like Facebook, Twitter. They break down the code into 10,000 pieces or, yeah. you know, or 5,000 pieces or 100 pieces. So if the person works on that one piece, we only fucked up that one piece. Mm. So, and then he can deploy that one piece anytime without affecting the rest of the 99 codes. So that's what we are progressing towards. But if we have known, we will probably break down by module. For example, the, the, the conversation features, one module, the database, one module, mm -hmm. the, the billing, one module. So if someone is working on a billing, he can do whatever he want on the billing. It doesn't going to affect the login page or mm -hmm. the conversation or the automation. But right now, everything is one. And therefore, if one goes down, everything goes down. <laughs> Ouch. That, that really reminds me of, uh, I don't know how true this is, but like I, I'm on a Windows uh, computer myself. And every time the Windows uh, update comes around, like my entire computer slows down. And I think it's because it was structured in such a way where if you, if you look at how your cell phones update nowadays, like the Androids or even you know the iPhones, they are a lot more modular so that when certain parts are updated, it doesn't affect the main, the, the entire OS. But for Windows, like when you update, the entire OS pretty much gets hogged down to deal with the update. Yeah, yeah. That's true, that's true. So um, I'm curious to hear, like you say that the cost of finding developers is coming down. But at the same time, like when, when you start to build something, you need to plan for a lot of this unforeseen circumstances. So you're usually focusing on like, okay, what is the, the immediate thing that I can build right now at the lowest cost that may or may not scale? How do you kind of balance deciding like, uh, when should I save money versus when should I spend a little bit more money because I know that, or, or how do I know if I spend more money, will it actually benefit me more in the long run? That is why, um, yeah. So that's a great question. So that's why I recommend it's always best to hire a consultant mm. because you, you don't know what you don't know, right? By having a consultant consult with you, you know, you know, $100 an hour, it's actually not a lot. The amount of information you can ask within that hour, it's a lot. Like right now, you know, this podcast will be what, 30 minutes now? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of information can be consumed in that hour to allow you to make the decision whether it makes sense for you at that time. Yeah. So for example, if someone came to me and say, hey, you need to structure it this way, make it modular. When you start, 
working on a software. If I have known, I, I could have asked for the cost, right? If we were to do it this way, would it mm. be more expensive? And if they come to me and say, hey, oh, it's not going to take too much time. It's just, we just have to code it in such a way that it's different module and it's going to take the same time anyway. Yeah. Then I would have approached that differently rather than finding out now. You, you yeah. get what I mean? So mm -hmm. the, the, the consultation itself, you know, I highly recommend if anyone is doing a software, mm. do not save that money. The amount of information you learn from can help you, you know, streamline your process and, you know, avoid a lot of the loopholes or the mistakes that you may make. Or even though you know it's a mistake, that's fine. At least you know that it's going to come. You can plan ahead rather than you getting surprised by the decision you make a few months ago and you realize you can't pivot anymore because yeah. it's too late. So, yeah, um, that's one of the ways to avoid it. Or just talk to someone in that industry who is a founder, who have developed a software. You know, it doesn't have to be a huge million-dollar company. It can be someone who just 10 steps ahead of you yeah. and just invite them for coffee or, you know, just pay them by the hour um, and see what they would recommend. Yeah. Uh, related to that note, what do you, what are your thoughts on finding, like, a technical co-founder or a CTO? That's, I think that's a, actually the question I asked you uh, back then when I uh, was looking for a solution. Um, but my answer today is I don't think it's important to hire a technical co-founder. Mm. If you don't have one, I don't think we should rush it. Mm -hmm. or we sh uh, I mean, yes, you should actively seeking for one. But in reality is that uh, the probability of you finding the right fit and the right co-founder who has technical skills is rare. <laughs> so I would rather recommend that you focus more on the MVP, getting the design UX UI done, mm -hmm. and then think what's the best way you can develop the software without all those features to start making you money and mm -hmm. helping you sell the product without waiting. Yeah. And then, you know, pay someone from Southeast Asia, uh, you know, $20 an hour. Yeah. to start creating that software. It's going to be a little bit costly. I get it. But, you know, we, we a lot of times when I talk to other people, they are just waiting for the right co-founder to get started. If they don't, they don't find them, they don't start. Yeah. And then you ended up getting nowhere. So, yeah, instead of waiting for the right co-founder, which is rare, it was, <laughs> I, I found out it's really hard to find the right one just because the good one are all taken away yeah. or the good one, already starting working on their project, they don't need you because yep. they think they can do everything. I mean, that's what most founders try to do everything themselves. Mm -hmm. So you are coming in a pers uh, perspective where you have to convince them with your uh, capabilities, your marketing skills, your strategy, or whatever uh, background you're coming from to get yeah. them to come in and join you on this quest. It's it's really hard. It's like finding a wife. <laughs> of, yeah. You get what I mean? It's it's not easy. You know, someone have to commit with you for the next two, two years, yeah. creating a software and they spend all those time because initially how it works is that if you are not a, a, a technical developer, mm -hmm. chances are you don't really get involved much in the initial process. You probably strip thinking what's your MVP, you get design done. Yeah. But, the developer will be the one that spent a lot of time creating that for you. Mm -hmm. And when that is created, they have wasted, let's just say, six months of their time, mm -hmm. hoping that they will get paid now by you taking it off the ground and doing the marketing and trying to get the sale. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so he's scared of you not 
able to do that. And now he wasted six months of his time and you scared of him because it's too costly. And then you aren't able to sell and now everything falls apart. So yeah. I recommend, you know, do it yourself, get someone that you can hire with the proper milestone, get it done. And then while in the meantime, you can search for technical uh, co-founder and get your project started, outsource to overseas. I know there's a lot of uh, uh, people saying, you know, why should you outsource? You know, you should create job in the local industry. But I think the goal here is first make your money. From yeah. there, you can always bring everything in-house. You can create more jobs, more career. But if you don't be successful, then whatever you want to do doesn't get realized and you are the one that suffer. So initially outsource, get the right developer, you know, one guy take, uh, to code everything from scratch. You're going to mm -hmm. cost a, a couple of thousand dollars or more, uh, but that's the cost of starting a company anyway. Um, it's better than spending, you know, uh, you know, 100 grand or 25 grand in university. That 25 mm -hmm. grand, you're able to create a fully functional software that you can start selling. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you so much for saying that. I, I I totally agree on that. And I find that oftentimes when people look for that that CTO, they don't really understand what a CTO's role is. Because when, when they're looking for a tech person, sometimes they, they really just need a developer to build something. And, and a good CTO is really someone who is able to not only build the product, but also have that insight on like the architecture, be able to plan ahead and think about those problems that you talk about. Re really, it's that that sitting in that consultation kind of role that you talked about, that, that, that tech expert who can say like, oh, you know what? If you build a MongoDB, these, these are the problems that will happen if you put all of your, your users on the same database, right? So having them have more of that strategic level thinking is one thing. And not every developer has that, that kind of mentality. Some of them are really good at coding, but they don't really think about the infrastructure. Um, and then on the other side of things as well is the, yeah, like, like you say, it's, it's so difficult to find a good developer and it's much easier just to get stuff off the ground first. And then you can promote later. Like maybe if the developer that you hire right now, right now is, is someone who you find is a good fit and is able to think ahead and, and be a bit more strategic, then you can always promote them later on to become a CTO as well. Yep. Yep. That's one of the, uh. That's what we do, actually. So we actually don't have a CTO. I, mm -hmm. I kind of am a CTO because I, when I create the cool call, the first software that I created, which, you know, it didn't go well. <laughs> right now, it's just sitting down there, you know, have a couple of clients here and there, but that's it. That was what I learned, and that helps me create the uh, Wu Center, which is a mm -hmm. second software company. Um, but technically... I only run the operation based on what I know. The, I I trust the team that I hired in Vietnam to do everything. And the good news is they are doing a great job. Thank God. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, like um, I think there's a cost to everything. So the cost of not getting started, the cost of you know finding a technical developer. Uh, right now we finally hired our own CTO where they have with 15 years of experience helping startups. Uh, you know, maintain, develop, scale their uh, software. And, you know, that actually takes us like almost six months to find the right guy. Mm -hmm. And then the second guy that we're going to bring in in-house, it's also a guy that we have been hit hunting for a long, long time. <laughs> uh, thank God through connection, we know that this, uh, the CTO's friend's friend, who they worked together six years back, who he trusted and he, he know that he's a really good coder, 
uh, he recommended him to us and through connection, we were able to bring him in to our company. So yeah, like um, actively seeking is good, but don't let that be the roadblock for mm -hmm. you to create the next software, you know, get started, plan out the cost, how much you can invest in the software. And then, you know, once you have the visual done, it's really easy for developers to tell you, okay, this is going to take six weeks and it's going to cost you this much. Sure, it might be a little bit more, or a little bit less, but with a proper visual guideline that you created the entire design, you know, it can be done. Do you know exactly your pricing is and then you know how much you need to invest. So rather than, you know, you hire someone by the hour and not show what the timeline is, but if you give them a proper uh, scope, with all the design that you already did, they were able to give you a right pricing and a right, usually 90, 80% correct when it comes to cost. Yeah, cool. So where, where is WooSender now in terms of the, the business, in terms of like how many customers do you have, revenue, like what's next on the, on, on the roadmap? Are you raising capital? Are you launching new features? Um. So that's actually a very great question. So let's just, start with the uh, how many clients. So we have about 1,200 clients at the moment, if I'm not wrong. Um, our revenue is close to around 8 million if I'm not wrong, a year. Um, so that's good. Um, yeah, we, we, we have a decent cash flow and a very healthy uh, company at the moment. We're still growing rapidly. Um, we hope to either raise funding so that we can start scaling even faster and bring real talent in-house. Uh, but at the same time, this is something me and my business partner, is, this is the first time that we reached that level. So we are thinking, you know, either we do it ourselves. We, we keep asking ourselves, do we need the cash? If we, if we don't need the cash, then do we need to raise funds? I think that's a question we are exploring right now. Because the key here, I realize, is speed. Mm -hmm. um, sooner or later, someone will come along and beat us or fight with us. Mm -hmm or join us, right? So um, rather than waiting for that next guy who has more budget, more expertise, more experience beating us in our game, raising funding would be a very good choice to speed the whole development up. So when the one thing I learned is when you raise funding, uh, saving money is no longer a key <laughs> indicator or a key process anymore. When they invest in you, they want you to spend all, hiring the right person as fast as possible, spend as much money as possible, spend as much money and scale up as fast as possible. Mm -hmm. um, that That is good when you're, so they're making sure that you are ahead of the game so that when someone comes and compete with you, they are far, far way behind. That's, that's something that we are thinking about. Maybe it's time to race, not for the sake of money, but rather than for the sake of speed. Good point, good point. Cool. Uh, I think I'm going to try and summarize some of the key points that I learned, uh, and then we can probably wrap it up. Um, so the, the first takeaway I heard is really don't cheap out on finding a, a good technical consultant to help you understand how to get started. Um, the other one is the when, when it comes to finding a developer to work with, uh, price is not everything. So don't, don't just go for the cheapest. Make sure that you actually... Uh, look at reviews, make sure that they, they really understand what you're doing. Uh, in terms of the process, book with a designer first before jumping to developers. Uh, really understand what's the flow, how are things going to be, um, you know, what, what your 
app or software needs to do before you can actually pass the entire vision off to a developer to help them really understand what they need to code or build. Um, and then another one would be uh, as as it comes to launching, try to launch with the, the minimum viable product. What is the simplest version that you can actually start to profit off on, that you can start to sell, that, that people can actually get a good experience of, of, of your product or service. Uh, and then from there, you can start to build on top of that. And then I also heard uh, try to be modular. So instead of building everything on, on the main base, try to have different segments so that when, when you do updates, when you roll out new features, uh, you don't have to basically refresh your entire code base. Um, am I missing anything? Do you have anything else you want to add? Uh, nope. I think you covered everything. That's good. Great. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's been a very insightful and interesting episode. So thank, thanks for sharing. No problem. Thank you so much for uh, hosting me.